It's Thursday, January the 20th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hubs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. While I'm the only uh, fellow at Hoover who can lay claim to that rather wordy job title, I'm not the only Hoover fellow who's in the podcasting business these days. And if you don't believe me, go to the Hoover website and check it out yourself. Uh, our website is www.hoover.org. Uh, when you get there, click on the publications tab, then go to where it says podcast, and you'll see a whole raft of shows there in front of you. You can subscribe to any or all of them. I also encourage you to sign up for what we call our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best of our podcast to you in your inbox. Hoover Podcast, just one part of ideas of defining a free society. My guest on today's show is Tom Bevan. Tom is the co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, which is an independent nonpartisan media company that delivers news analysis and commentary. Uh, my colleague Peter Berkowitz writes for RCP. Uh, so does David Brady, who's a frequent guest on this podcast. He had a piece in uh, Real Clear Politics a few days ago on illogical purity. Uh, very germane to what happened in Washington yesterday, I would add. If you watch cable news, you've seen Tom Bevan talking politics on Fox News. I especially like his appearances on Brett Baer's special report. Tom hosts a, a weekly radio show on politics on 89 WLS in Chicago. He's also a Hoover Institution Media Fellow. Tom, i got to get you back out here. The Stanford Golf Course beckons. Uh, let's do it. Are we open for business out there or is still California locked down? Uh, complicated question. So we are at the moment, we're doing this on Thursday, the 20th. In theory, on the 24th, we're allowed to go back in our offices. Tom, uh, I'm on wait and see mode. I remember going through this in March of, uh, of uh, 2020 and 2021, just uh, you know, sort of sort of like Charlie Brown in the football. Yeah, come back in a couple of weeks. No, wait a couple of weeks. So, uh, but you could actually play golf. So <laughs> still allowed to do that in California last time I checked. Very good. Hey, Tom, so uh, you're kind enough to come on today to talk about Joe Biden since today is the 20th of January. This is the one year anniversary of the inauguration. I did a little research for this podcast, Tom, and I looked up uh, poll numbers of presidents uh, one year into the job. These are all Gallup numbers I'm going to toss at you. So here is Joe Biden uh, after one year uh, per Gallup. He sits at 40 percent in the polls. That's right in line with your real clear politics average of 40.9 percent. Uh, let's quickly go down the list here. These are elected presidents, Tom. So no Gerald Ford, no uh, so no Linda Johnson. Um, so Biden at 40%. Donald Trump at this point in his presidency, 38%. Barack Obama, 49%. Bush, 43 84%, but that's obviously an aberration brought on by 9-11. Bill Clinton, 55%. Bush, 41 at 80%. Ronald Reagan, 48%. Jimmy Carter, Tom, 54%. Richard Nixon, 63%. John Kennedy, 79%. Dwight Eisenhower, 71%. So, Tom, I see two ways to look at this. On the one hand, you're the Biden White House right now. You are underwater. You are struggling. But you could say, hey, there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's Ronald Reagan. He got 48% approval at this point in his presidency. He went on to get comfortably reelected. On the other hand, Tom, there is Donald Trump, the guy you displaced from office, and you're only two points above where Donald Trump was. Trump never a popular president. Let's see. How do you how do you make these poll numbers, Tom? What, what, what how do you view them? Well, I mean, even Barack Obama, who, as you mentioned, was at about 48 percent right. in Gallup, you know, suffered a, a thumping in his first midterm. So <laughs> it, it's hard to look at these numbers in any way other than as as pretty dire for the administration. I mean, this Biden did come into office with fairly high approval ratings. He had fairly high ratings. His favorability ratings were pretty high. Um, he had fairly high ratings in terms of those, uh, even before he took office and had proposed any policies. He had high ratings on 
those intangible aspects of, of presidency? Do you think he's competent? Do you think he's got experience? Does he care about people like you? Is he honest? Right. Um, high ratings in all of those. Uh, the last year has eroded those numbers dramatically to the point where now he's basically tied with Donald Trump in terms of his favorability, not, not approval rating, but favorability. Do you, do you, are you favorably disposed toward this individual or not? Um, he's underwater, particularly among independents on questions of honesty, competency, um, all of those things. And so mm. even his hallmark, you know, Joe Biden, he's supposed to be sort of this blue collar lunch bucket guy. Uh, most voters now don't think he cares about people like them. Right. Uh, Democrats still do, but Republicans don't and independents don't. And so um, even aside from, from the policy uh, you know, issues, he has suffered fairly dramatically. And again, as we're talking, you know, we're now in the midterm year. Right. You know, Sean Trendy has done some, he has a model for this, which has been spectacularly accurate in the past um, because and presidential job approval rating is one of the prime indicators for how a party's going to do. And it makes perfect sense. If you, if you think the president's doing a good job, you're going to vote for members of his party. If you don't, you won't. Um, and you can see that now reflected in the fact that, <clears throat> you know, Biden's approval rating, and you look at the generic congressional ballot where Democrats are, uh, they're pretty close. And at this point, if Biden doesn't improve, uh, you know, Democrats are in for a, a, a shellacking. I mean, they're going to lose, they're going to lose, I think the, the most likely outcome, according to Sean's model right now, is four Senate seats. Mm-hmm. It might even be in the range of five now and somewhere in the neighborhood of you know 40 to 50 House seats. So it's going to be a bloodbath if Biden can't get his approval ratings back up uh, from where they are right now. So one way to try to get your approval ratings up, Tom, is to go on TV. And yesterday, the president did just that. And he did something rather extraordinary by presidential standards. Not just a press conference, Tom, a two-hour White House press conference. Um, The best word I could use to describe this, I think, might be unwieldy. Uh, It just kind of was all over the place, which you might expect for two hours. I checked your Twitter feed, Tom, and here are a few things that caught your attention. Number one, um, that Biden would not guarantee that elections would be free and fair um, without passage of the voter rights bill. I don't know if you saw the Today Show this morning, uh, Tom, but uh, Kamala Harris went on to do a little cleanup for the press conference, and she got into a dust up with Savannah Guthrie over this issue. And I would contend that if you're having fights with the Today Show, you're in a bad place politically. The second thing you pointed out was um, another thing the Biden presidency had to clean up today, the president himself actually cleaning this up, uh, when uh, Biden giving the impression that um, that Russia moving to the Ukraine, if it was a quote, his words were a minor incursion, um, that basically that would be okay. So he had to go in front of the cameras today and say, wait a second, uh, invasions are invasions, period. Um, third thing you noticed, he got very testy when reporters started pressing him on being um, not a uniter, but a divider, specifically the use of uh, Bull Connor in his speech last week. Atlanta. Um, a word about that, Tom Bull Connor. I'm a recovering speechwriter. Uh, one of the first rules of speechwriting, Tom, is when you're kind of invoking historical characters in the past. Make sure they're characters people know. How, how many Americans, Tom, do you think know who Bull Connor is? Uh, probably not a lot. <laughs> and and the people who do know who Bull Connor is, and George Wallace and Jefferson Davis, right. Um, First of all, they know they're all Democrats. Uh, but second of all, they know that that uh, that's a very offensive characterization for someone who disagrees with you politically on the issue of, you know, Democrats call it voting rights, Republicans call it election integrity, mm-hmm. and and even and this was the question that our reporter Phil Wegman asked. Uh, 
right? Uh, because he was lumping into those categories his own Democrats, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. And, and, you know, is that the kind of rhetoric that presidents, A, should be using it all, and B, think is going to somehow be effective in persuasion? Um, and, and he did. He got, he got pretty testy and defensive over that, um, even though he had just basically said, you know, he said, look, I didn't call them racists like Bull Connor. I just said that, you know, this was a moment where if you if you voted one way, you were going to be basically history would record you as being on the same side as people like Bull Connor and George Wallace, which is effectively like I'm not specifically calling you a racist. I'm just saying you're you know, you're with the racists. Um, Very little distinction there. So I think he got caught up in and this was a in that in that instance in particular, uh, even members of his own party had said that he went too far yeah. uh, with that rhetoric. And so, but he refused to back down. I mean, he just, the whole thing was billed, yesterday was billed as a, as a reset where he was going to talk about reset. And, and, you know, in the first answer or two, he said, basically, listen, we're going to stay on the same track. We're doing the same thing. We're just going to, you know, it's, it's, I understand your frustration, but we're going to keep doing what we've been doing because, you know, we're on the right track. It wasn't until, my gosh, near the end, you know, an hour and 30 minutes in when I think Jeff Zeleny of, of CNN asked him, you know, what are you going to do different? He said, I'm going to do three things different. He said, I'm going to listen more. I'm going to travel more and I'm going to campaign for Democrats. Right. And I, I thought to myself, like, well, he really buried the lead there, didn't he? He should have started by saying, here are the three things I'm going to do differently this year right. uh, to indicate to voters that he is, in fact, going to try and uh, you know, changes his methods and his strategy because what they've been doing for this first year certainly hasn't worked, at least in the eyes of voters. Yeah, so that's, that caught my attention too, Tom. What he said in essence is we don't have a policy problem, we have a communications problem. Right, which and is what people always say when they're flailing about. It is. It's uh, funny. If you remember the movie Wag the Dog, uh, for example, uh, Ed Hetch plays the uh, hysterical character, uh, not hysterical funny, but hysterical in terms of just unbalanced uh, communications person running around saying, can't go out there without talking points. In other words, everything is a communications problem. So that's, I guess it's cool hand Luke would be the other metaphor we have as a failure. But, <laughs> right. But no, that's the idea. Well, it's just, what we it's have not, here is a communications problem. Right. But I guess that is the Biden White House's view of the world right now. There's nothing wrong with our policies. We're just not getting our guy out here. But that's kind of a proposition, Tom, because the Biden presidency, the Biden presidential campaign was minimalist in this regard. They they made a decision in the campaign that rather than expose Joe Biden for reasons having to do with both health, but also practical politics, the less you saw of Joe Biden, the more you saw of Donald Trump, the better for Joe Biden. The correct calculation, it got him elected. That was the correct The presidential approach has been very much the same. This was only the second press conference he's done in a year, the first one in 78 days. Um, they're not putting him in front of the cameras that much. He's not traveling that much. They're letting great problems for himself. But the idea that now all of a sudden we're going to sort of turn loose Joe Biden on the American people the way that you know Woodrow Wilson went out and tried to, you know, tried to sell the League of Nations, I'm not sure that's smart politics, Tom. It's it's not. And I think. Part of the problem is, um, you know, Biden campaigned basically on two things, right? He said that he's going to shut down the virus, which which obviously they have struggled to do, mm-hmm. and that he was going to unite the country. And and he has chosen throughout the first year of his presidency to take instead of the, the you know, instead of compromise, he's chosen confrontation. Right. Um, he has chosen to 
just for example, on the virus, on vaccine mandates, um, he has chosen instead of working with red state governors, he basically told them, get out of the way if you're not going to be part of the solution. If you're not signing on to what we're doing, I'm going to move you out of the way. Uh, so he has chosen confrontation. And um, other than other than the infrastructure bill, mm-hmm. um, they haven't really done. I mean, it was interesting last in yesterday's press conference. We also learned that Biden admitted that he hadn't even reached out to a single Republican on voting rights. Not one, not even Mitt Romney was. And that was the specific question. Right. Because Romney said, I haven't got a phone call from this White House. And Biden admitted, yeah, he hasn't. So. He, he really has not tried, I think, to, to compromise and unite the country, and that's reflected um, in his poll numbers as well. And, and the problem is the way that they have set this up now with trying to push through Build Back Better, shifting to voting rights, is there is no fallback plan. There is no plan B or plan C, something that they can shift to. They've, they've sort of burned bridges along the way. And it's it's hard to see how they can now revert to an issue where they can build consensus and compromise with Republicans at this point. I mean, just and we're in election year, so it's going to get even harder every single day that goes by. It's going to get harder to to get something done. And so they're kind of stuck. Yeah, Uh, stuck is a good word. I was going to say they're in a ditch when your man is at 40 percent in the polls. You have driven the car in a ditch. You can get the car out of a ditch. It's possible. But I think they're in a ditch nonetheless, Tom. So here's the question. What is the problem exactly here? I'm going to give you four, four theories of what could be wrong here. Let's okay. Pick and choose. Number one, the problem is Joe Biden himself, that he is not an executive. This is a man who is a career legislator, uh, and he's not really rooted in a philosophy. And so, therefore, he is just kind of moving at all times on ideas. He's not wed to anything necessarily, and he's never led in this way. He's run Senate committees, but not an executive branch of government. So, Biden, theory number one, Biden is just ill-suited for this job. Theory number two, Tom. It's a staff problem, a team problem, if you will. If you look at a debacle like the pullout of Afghanistan, that was a group screw-up, plain and simple. A lot of people had their had their fingerprints on that mess. So Biden just doesn't have a very competent staff around him. Uh, theory number three, this is the press. Um, the press, in some ways, kind of overrated the Biden presidency, if you will, helped foster his narrative that he replaced Donald Trump. Everything from COVID to just better feelings in this country, the, the nation will just sort itself out automatically if we just change the players, and that hasn't necessarily done to be. So you can blame the press in some regards for building up expectations. And then the fourth theory here, Tom, is that we the people are the problem. If you go back and look at John Kennedy's poll numbers, there he is at 79% a year after barely winning the presidency, thanks to your Chicago in large part. Um, but we gave- don't, don't question, don't question the integrity of elections, Bill. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's a unforgivable sin these days. I know I'm Bull Connor, I guess, but uh, <laughs> no, the, the, the point is that 60 years ago, um, here is a new president uh, still struggling in some regards to find his feet. John Kennedy did not get, get off to a clean start at all of his presidency, yet he still had very solid support. In other words, people rallied behind their presidents at that time. But here we are in this day and age. There's Joe Biden down at 40 percent. So there I've given you four choices, Tom. Joe Biden, his staff, the press and we, the American people. So have at I, well, I think it's a combination of all four. I mean, there's no question that that this we are in a in, in very divided moment in the country, certainly way more divided than we were during Kennedy or even Reagan. I mean, there were still moderates in both parties who who could support, you know, reach across the aisle. Um, 
even with Obama. I mean, Obama started his term with strong support. I mean, very strong support from independents and even among Republicans. Now that withered during his first term as we became sort of more divided. And, you know, you can, you can argue that it's cable news and it's social media and we have all these, we've just become more tribal. And so, uh, you know, Biden has suffered from that a, a little bit. Um, but certainly, you know, he, he didn't suffer as much as Trump did in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, he did start off with a, you know, 55% approval rating or whatever it was. And that was because of Democrats, but also because of independents and, and even some Republicans. And the reason he's now gone from 55 to 41 is he's lost a little bit of support among Democrats, but mostly it's been independents and Republicans right. have been, you know, pretty steadfastly against him since he started. But I think it's probably the, the number one and number two are probably the biggest parts of that. That Biden's ill-suited to the job. Um, he is in some ways an accidental president. Um, we had never seen anything like this in the history of presidential politics. A, a, a candidate who finished, what, fourth in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire, or vice versa, was literally on his political deathbed um, and and was revived miraculously by Jim Clyburn of vote in South Carolina. And then all these Democrats fell into line behind him, gave up their campaigns and, and endorsed him in ways that, you know, we, again, we haven't seen. So he finds himself in this position, um, surprisingly, as the nominee of the party. And I, I think it's a staff issue. I also think it's, it is a, a Democratic party problem in the sense that the party has moved dramatically to the left. Mm-hmm. You know, Biden ran the campaign by saying, look, I'm not Bernie. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an evolution, not a revolution. You know, I'm going to fight back against these crazies in the left wing of my party. But since he has taken office, he has really worked to appease and placate and, and keep happy uh, that element of his party. And it's understandable why he's doing that. Um, but at the same time, it's also cost him, I think, rather dearly with, you know, moderates, independents, swing voters around the country who have moved rather dramatically. We talked about his approval rating. You know, the single best thing he could do to uh, improve his approval rating is not to go on television and spout the same stuff he's been spouting for a year. It would be to go on television and give a a sister soldier type speech against the left wing of his party on critical race theory or on crime or on, you know, one of these other issues that's really resonating with people out there and say, listen, we, you know, defund the police. I mean, he'd get five, 10 points back with independence overnight by doing something like that. Would he alienate Democrats, you know, progressive Democrats and members of the left wing of his party? Yes, he would. But, but he would position himself back in sort of the, the same center, I think, which is where most people thought he was to begin with. Right. Um, he just hasn't governed that way. And, and that's, that's the real tricky part because, you know, midterm elections, you've got to have your base excited. There's no question. You got to have base turnout, but you also have to win over independent voters. You can't go out there with your base alone. If you, if you, I mean, his, his approval rating among independents in some of these polls is, is 25 to 30%. If only 25% of independents vote for him or vote for Democrats in November, it's going to be a bloodbath. So he has to improve his standing with, with independents. And he hasn't figured out uh, a way to do that. He hasn't really hasn't even really tried 
mm-hmm. to do that from either a policy perspective or a rhetorical perspective. Right. So here's the theory, Tom, as to why maybe he has not gone sister soldier yet. Uh, the easiest way to go sister soldier would be to call out somebody in the house, one of the members of the squad, when they do something that's anti-Semitic or anti-cop or, you know, pick out whatever various you know crime you want to. Um, but here's the problem, Tom. Uh, you look at the way the House is lined up. He can't afford to lose Democratic votes in the House if he wants to get anything passed. Um, so I'd contend that if he wants to do that, he's got to wait until 2023. And if Sean Trendy is right, the House goes Republican, then there are the Democrats sitting in the minority. They don't really matter. So then he could go and pick one. Uh, but this ties into a, a curious thing about Biden. His presidency, here's a guy, Tom, who has been on the scene politically for 50 years. He has watched presidents from Richard Nixon to Donald Trump come and go. Uh, in theory, he understands what it is to be a president. He has you know, sat next to Barack Obama and watched these things. And yet he comes into office. And what does he do? He sits down with a group of liberal historians, and he has quickly talked into the notion that he, Joe Biden, could be the next FDR, the next LBJ, when, if you look at the room, he has scant control of the House, just a few votes separate Republicans, Democrats, and the Senate's 50-50. And as we saw yesterday with the filibuster vote, he can't deliver uh, items over there. So this is what I don't understand, the disconnect. A guy who on paper, Tom, is very well qualified to be president and should just understand the job very well. But yet he's made just this, this fundamental miscalculation that he thinks that for some reason this is 1933, this is 1965. Yes, I, I totally agree. I mean, especially given the majorities, the slim majorities that they have in the House and the Senate to to propose, you know, FDR type legislation or, you know, I mean, FDR had massive majorities in Congress. Um, Biden has none of that. I do think it is. um, And I, I think this is part of what we're seeing with the voting rights push and why he's so aggressive and obstinate in in his defense of his his language you know biden really thinks his believes and has said many times i mean he he ran because he want he believed the soul of the nation was in danger and he was the one who could save it right Right. he needed to restore the soul of the nation donald trump charlottesville that was the that was the defining moment where biden you know said i got to do this and he did save the nation from he, he achieved his purpose right his stated purpose, which was defeating Donald Trump. Um, but then he sort of bought into this hype, his own hype, I guess, that, um, you know, he needed to be uh, FDR. He needed to save the nation. Um, and particularly with this voting rights thing. I mean, I, I think Biden, I'm not sure he, I mean, certainly there are some Democrats who, who are playing along with this because they're cynical and it's, it's their political calculus. But I think Biden does believe as hard, I mean, as hard of a sell as this is to the American people that, mm-hmm. that this is an existential threat to democracy. I think, you know, perhaps January 6th switched something in his, in his brain that made him think that, um, you know, this is now the most important issue and, and we have to, we have to rectify it or, you know, democracy as we know it is over. The problem with that is that the, that is not where the American people are. I mean, the, the priorities of this administration have fallen out of whack with where the American people are. I mean, they spent, the administration spent all this time on January 6th, they're spending all this time on voting rights and trying to convince people that, Voting in 2022 is the same as voting in 1965. I mean, that, that 
you know, Republicans are rolling back and trying to prevent people of color from going to vote uh, in this country, all around this country. Um, and it's just people don't believe it. It doesn't really pass the, the smell test to a lot of people, especially when, you know, we had more people vote last time, the, including African-Americans than anyone, in, in, you know, and where you have states like Biden's own state of Delaware that has fewer days of early voting than Georgia. Uh, you know, it's like it's there are too many incongruous points that that make that really, really hard message to sell. So I but but that's where he is. That's where he's ended up. And I think that's part of the bind that the administration finds itself in right now. Yeah. The other leap in logic here is um, you want to be FDR fine. FDR ran for reelection three times, Tom. You want to be LBJ, fine. LBJ ran for re-election, um, you know, after 1964. Um, thought about running again in 1968, but wisely did not. Uh, but you look at Joe Biden. He is 79 years old. Tom, he would be um, just a few weeks shy of his 82nd birthday if he ran in November of 2024. Um, it's hard to look at him as nothing other than a transitional president. Now, I could be very wrong here. I was wrong about Donald Trump every step of the way, so I could be just as wrong about, about Joe Biden. Maybe he runs in 2024, but you look at him right now and not just the way the presidency is going, but himself, his health, his presentation. I don't see him running in 2024. So again, the disconnect of you're in that job for four years, and yet you're trying to do all these just enormous generational changes, which don't speak to a, a band-aid of a presidency. Yeah. I mean, and he even said that during the campaign that he was going to be the, you know, yeah. pass the torch to the new generation. He didn't call himself a placeholder, but that's effectively what everyone assumed right. that he was going to be. Look, he can't declare himself a lame duck before his first year is even over. And when this stuff started percolating in what was it, October, November, um, you know, obviously he couldn't. And, and he's he's in the middle of the fighting to get build back better over the finish line. He, he's not can't come out and say, look, I'm not going to run in 2024. So uh, that, I think, explains why the administration took the tack that they do. But I agree with you. I mean, I, I think the odds that he's on the ticket. I think the odds that either one of these people are on the ticket in 2024 is pretty slim. Let's talk about Tom. the other. Per- let's talk about the other person then for a minute, Tom. I just, <laughs> wrote, a, I just wrote a piece for Hoover. It came out um, a couple hours ago um, and uh, wrote about Biden's relationship with California, and it's kind of a curious one, Tom, because he got 62 percent, 63 percent of the statewide vote here. It was a romp, as it has been for Democrats for for many elections now. Um, And he put a Californian on the ticket. But he has only been out to California once um, during his first year in office. And it was uh, right on the eve of the recall election. Uh, So it was as much a political visit for Gavin Newsom as it was anything else. Uh, And he waited last minute until he knew Newsom was going to win. But you haven't seen him come out and really shower California with a lot of love the way that Bill Clinton did when he first became president, but uh, a different California and a different president. Clinton had flipped California in 1992. He was paranoid about losing it. And so he just just showered California constantly with attention. But maybe maybe California's neglected that way. Um, I had a little fun, though, and I posited here's one other reason why Biden maybe doesn't want to come to California. It's a long plane trip. And as he's flying out to the West Coast, he's realizing that there are two problem children from California in his cabinet. Uh, one is Javier Becerra, his HHS secretary, who's just nowhere to be seen during the whole pandemic. It's quite a startling thing. Your health secretary just doesn't have a very visible role in this. But the second is his vice president, Kamala Harris. So uh, your thoughts on Kamala after one year as vice president, Tom? You know, she just gave a round of interviews this morning. She was on the Today Show. She was right. on a CBS morning show. And 
you know, she's also trying to reboot after a rough year where she suffered a number of, of self-inflicted wounds and gaffes and, and whatnot. And she was the same Kamala. I mean, she was, she was on, on the same message. She got a little testy with Savannah Guthrie, as you mentioned. Um, she's just not very good at her job. I mean, that's what it comes down to. She's not a very good politician. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she proved that during the campaign. And Biden still chose her as his vice president for a variety of reasons. Um, but the idea that she would somehow, you know, magically transform into this good politician uh, just hasn't been the case. And and I just so for that reason, I she still has ambitions, right? She still right. has her supporters. I think she's going to try and run. But I, I just think if she does, um, she's not going to clear the field. I mean, she's going to have she's going to have people who recognize her weaknesses as a candidate and try and take advantage of those. Cause there are plenty of other people in the, in the democratic party who envision themselves to be uh, presidential material. So it's been a, it's been a bad first year for her. Um, and I, I don't know um, how she, how she manages to turn things around um, because she's not really giving any indication that she's going to, you know, change her behavior or her strategy or her message. And without any changes in those things, I mean, she's just going to get more of the same. Okay. Here defenders push back in two ways. Number one is that the president's people are not doing her any favors. Um, They hand off hand grenades, the likes of immigration. Um, If you go back to the early days of the voting rights bill, the president said, I'm going to have Kamala carry this thing through the Senate, which is kind of silly because Tom Kamala was in the Senate for four years and she spent about three years and nine months of those four years campaigning for president, not much time in the chamber. She's not a relationship person like Biden. So he's curious, but I think there's a little bit of a point there that they have tasked her with some javelin catching here and there. Uh, And then the other pushback is obviously that if you criticize Kamala, you're either a a misogynist or a racist or, or both. Right. Which I mean, is, is really rich given that some of the criticisms have come from inside the white house and from members of her own party. I mean, that's just and former staffers. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember during the campaign when she dropped out, you know, she, she attributed it to racism or sexism. And when Pete Buttigieg dropped out, you know, it was like, well, uh, you know, there's homophobia. And I mean, it's just like, you're talking about democratic primary voters here, people. I mean, that's not the, the best way to, uh, endear yourselves is to is to run down uh, members of your own electorate, but like just take immigration. Yes, it's a tough issue. It is a tough issue. Um, but did she really handle it well? I mean, she didn't go to the border for weeks upon weeks upon weeks, and suffered bad press day after day, day after day, and then finally she goes to the border. She doesn't even actually go to the border. She goes to a border station that's not on the border. She's there, flies in, was there for a couple hours, gets a tour around, and is out of there. That's it? I mean, so part of this is her own doing. She, Yes, she has gotten tough issues. There's no question. Um, but she hasn't handled them well. And, you know, we've seen uh, num- numerous examples of how she's failed to answer even basic questions that she should know are coming from even, you know, favorable, favorably disposed media people. Right. Right. It's not like she's, it's not like she's doing interviews with, you know, uh, Sean Hannity on Fox news. I mean, these are friendlies and they ask her simple questions about, you know, basic issues 
and she can't even answer them. So she has um, some of this, I would say a large portion of it is, is of her own doing. And that um, again, just goes back to, she just doesn't, she doesn't have the chops and it's not, it's not racist to say that it's not sexist to say that um, there are plenty of other people in the democratic party of all races and, and sexes um, who, who have proven that they, you know, have political chops. She just doesn't have them. And it's, it's one of those things like <clears throat> it's, it's, you know, some politicians just have it. They have that thing, that, that gene, that empathy, you know, the Bill Clintons of the world, um, she just doesn't have it. And that's not something that you can, you can only be taught so much. And if you, you know, if you don't have that X factor where you can make those sorts of connections with people, um, then, then politics is going to be tough for you. Right. Uh, but Tom, how could Joe Biden make Kamala Harris go away if he wanted her to go away? Uh, there would be hell to pay inside the democratic party if he were to drop her. Totally. Um, and, and he was asked yesterday, <clears throat> is she going to be on the ticket if you run again? And he said, yeah. I yeah. mean, he just flat out said yes. So uh, there was, <laughs> I, I think it was Jeffrey Tubin on CNN posited, you know, Kamala would be a long shot if for the Supreme Court, if, if one of the justices dies and I, that would be one way to get away, get, get, get rid of her perhaps um, if he was desperate. But beyond that, I mean, there's just, no, he's, he's, he is stuck with her uh, yeah. for better or worse. Let's play along with that for a second. Okay. Let's say, let's say justice Breyer steps down. Um, and then he has a vacancy to fill. He is already on the record of the campaign saying it has to be an African-American woman. Uh, so there he's put himself in a box, just like he put himself in a box. The vice president's choice had to be a woman. So Kamala, Kamala checks the box. And so he puts Kamala in. Who would he name as vice president? That's a great question. That's a great question. Uh, I don't know. Because this ties in another issue of the Democratic Party, and I, this is not exclusively bash Democrats day here, but there's a question about depth and, and talent on the bench, if you will. Uh, who is who is waiting in the wings to, to run if Joe Biden doesn't? Who are the rising stars of the Democratic Party? Who would Joe Biden uh, pick as a, as a vice president slash running mate? Would he, mm. would he dare to triangulate and pick somebody kind of moderate? I don't think that would play well with his progressive wing. If he picks a progressive, then that just goes back to the problem of not playing in flyover America. So I don't see him possessing a lot of great choices here. No, um, <clears throat> I agree. And now the vice presidential pick is, is not terribly important in terms of, um, in terms of electoral outcomes and whatnot, but no. uh, it is, it is a signal to the party about your, you know, your priorities or your thought process. And I mean, maybe it'd be someone like Pete Buttigieg or, or something like that. I mean, but let's assume that Biden doesn't run. And, you know, to your point, who, who are the people, I mean, we, we'd have the same cast of characters that ran in 2020. It would be Amy Klobuchar, it'd be Pete Buttigieg, maybe Elizabeth Warren. There's talk, there's talk of Hillary coming back now, right? Which is, in my opinion, was a, was a bit of a clickbait thing. I'm not sure how, uh, how legitimate that would be, but but that does speak to the idea that the Democrats don't have a lot of people, right? Uh, don't have a deep bench. They don't have a lot of stars that are waiting to, to you know, make their way onto the field. E even the ones that people thought, you know, a couple of years ago, I mean, Andrew Cuomo, Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer, even, you know, our governor here, J.B. Pritzker, who fancies himself a presidential material. All of those people have either, I mean, been, you know, removed from office 
almost removed from office, all have warts now um, and baggage that they're carrying from the last couple of years during the pandemic and whatnot. So it, it's it's not obvious that there's a, a savior out there for the Democratic Party who could, unless, and I said this in 2020, unless it's, you know, Michelle Obama uh, or, you know, who who could serve that role, play that role if she wanted to, but there's no indication. In fact, she's been on the record multiple times saying she's not interested. So that seems like a bit of a pipe dream. Yeah, I'm curious about the Obamas. I read a story yesterday, Tom, that apparently uh, the Obamas' two daughters are now living in Los Angeles. Uh, I've got to question your parenting skills when you move your kids to Los Angeles, <laughs> given, given just quality of life in Los Angeles these days. But, uh, you know, this does raise an interesting question for 2024, Tom, if there's no Joe Biden running. Um, but maybe let's assume there's Donald Trump running on the other side. Then I think both parties are in very much the same situation, Tom. The Democrats, absent Biden, will have a very prolonged discussion about what it is to be a Democrat in America in 2024 and multiple directions you can go. But you look at the Republican side, Tom, and if but if Trump is running on the Republican side, this is actually probably true regardless of Trump running, but a 2024 field with Trump would look very much, I think, Tom, like a 2016 field with Trump, where there'd be Trump and a bunch of other Republicans all trying to claim their own swim lanes, explaining what they think the Republican Party is in a non-Donald Trump fashion. So this, to me, would present kind of a brutal choice to the American people, Tom, watching two parties going through rather public identity crises. Yeah, I don't know how many Republicans are going to run if Donald Trump runs. I mean, it's it, it's like a kamikaze mission. I mean, you look at the polls and he's he's the clear choice of Republican primary voters. Um, now, there is this idea that, well, if DeSantis runs, you know, maybe Trump's support is soft and it's right. a, you know, mile wide and inch well, deep and they defect. Well, we know um, we know Christie's going to run because he's running for one purpose, and that's to try to take out Donald Trump. Yeah, right. I mean, but, but that doesn't mean right. anything. I mean, he's not right. going to get anywhere. In fact, you know, even without Donald Trump, I would argue that if you had a field, if you had a field of of and I've said this before, you know, if you had a field of of pre Donald Trump candidates and post Donald Trump candidates. So Chris Christie, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush. Right. um, None of those candidates are viable, in my opinion. The future is someone post Trump who who is able to sort of carry forward Trump's banner of national populism, but without the, you know, without the baggage of, of Donald Trump's personality. It's someone like, you know, Tim Scott, Ron DeSantis, Kirstie Noem, you know, one of those. I just think the idea that that the Republican Party is going to revert back to someone who, you know, from from a pre-Trump era mm-hmm. as the as the leader of the party is is makes no sense to me. So um, but again, if Donald Trump runs, he's the nominee. I mean, I just don't see unless unless, you know, DeSantis decides to try and run and and something, you know, his Trump support crumbles. But I just don't see that happening. And I don't think Ron DeSantis is going to run if Donald Trump runs. I think that's a that's a kamikaze mission that he's not um, he doesn't want to take on because it would it would harm him for future prospects for sure. Yeah, I think you're right. The 2016 scenario be uh, the scenario be very similar, similar to 2016, I think, Tom, and that Trump would win each week. He wouldn't buy plurality. He would not get 50, 60 percent of the vote, but he'd get maybe 30, 35, 40 percent. And he'd rack up delegates. And eventually he'd be past a point of no return. He couldn't stop him, just like 2016 when Republicans divided the anti-Trump vote. And eventually you just couldn't deny him the nomination as a result. I, so, I think he'd be stronger than that, Bill. I think he would get 50, 60 percent of the vote in places. Well, I mean, in Iowa? Yeah, I think he would. 
Um, in South Carolina, you think of some of these early states, uh, maybe not New Hampshire, but but mm-hmm. uh, you know, all across the South. I mean, he would romp. Yeah, there's nobody who would stop him. Yeah. By the way, January is a fun time of the year because this is state of the state time for most governors, January, February. And so it's really interesting to look at various governors. You mentioned Christy Noem, the governor of South Dakota. Um, look at her platform right now as a governor. It is really kind of fascinating red meat if you want to run presidentially. She is talking taxes and she is talking abortion. and She's talking guns, Tom. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, the thing with uh, Christy Noem is she... You know, she had this uh, fumble, I would say, on transgender rights in the NCAA, where she right. she vetoed this bill passed by the state legislature. She called it a, what was it, a form and function veto or something like that, yeah. um, which which outraged. Um, and it was a real sort of dramatic flip flop on her part. She initially signaled she would support the bill. Then it came to her desk. She vetoed it, and and she really paid a political price for that. I mean, she was you know, uh, going on, I, I remember her going on Tucker's show and some other shows trying to explain uh, her vote. And I think that really took her down uh, a notch uh, in terms of her viability as a, as a future national Republican candidate. So mm-hmm. I mean, she's definitely got star power. Uh, there's no question about it. Whether she can recover from that remains to be seen. And, you know, she just, I think it was last month or so, um, said something that she was going to, she was going to move forward with or put forward a bill or something to that effect about transgender, you know, leveling the playing field or something to that effect. And, and a lot of people sort of scoffed at her and said, look, it's, you know, it's too little too late. You had your chance. You're not, you don't get a second bite at this apple. Speaking of which, that would have been an interesting soldier moment for Biden if he had waited in, no pun intended, on the uh, controversy at University of Pennsylvania with the swimmer, which I think Caitlyn Jenner actually waited on the other day. And Caitlyn Jenner, of all people, made a lot of sense. And what did what did Caitlyn Jenner point out? Um, a a woman, a woman who's tra- a man who's transitioned to a woman still possesses the cardiovascular skills of a man, the respiratory uh, capabilities of a man, bigger hands, bigger feet. He slash she is better equipped to swim than a woman is. This is not fair. But very interesting if the president. United States had kind of come down on that side as well. And imagine the blowback that he would get from the left wing of his party if he did that. Even if he said, which is, again, a position that's probably an 80%, let's say it's, you know, I don't have any direct data on this, but let's just assume it's to say, hey, I'm all for transgender rights. I'm all for, you know, protecting the rights of, of transgender folks and, and it's important to me, but at the same time, we have to protect the the you know, fair play aspect of, of sports in this country. It's not fair to these girls who have trained their entire lives for this moment to be subject to a, you know, uh, uh, not a level playing field. And it's not fair. And we need to, we can do both as a country. We can protect, uh, you know, the, the rights of transgender folks. And we can also protect, uh, the, the fair play for women's sports. That's an 80% position in the country. I firmly believe that. And Joe Biden could, um, he would reap political benefits from taking that position. But again, I think the blowback is, is, would be enormous from the left wing of his party. And I just don't think he, he wants to put himself in that position. You might be right on that. Let's talk about where Biden goes from here. So um, his press conference, Tom, he said he's not going to adjust his policies. Um, so he is sticking with what he has. But then at the same time, he also said that he would be willing to take bits and pieces of Build Back Better, for example. So uh, it seems pretty obvious that he 
understands he can't get the big package, but he's willing to deal to get smaller things. So do you think he's going to be luck getting a smaller scale deal on anything? He might. He might actually. You know, it depends on what the pieces are that get put forward and, and whether there's any, he gets any Republican buy-in, but he may not need Republican buy-in if he can get his two senators on board. Um, you know, Kamala Harris could go in there and break the tie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this would have been a smart strategy to pursue months ago right. uh, as opposed to now, but, but better late than never, probably if you're a Democrat or if you're Biden to say, look, we try, you know, we, we fought our best fight to get the, the big package through, couldn't do it. So now we're going to go through this small ball strategy. Small ball has worked for presidents before, worked for Bill Clinton. It's worked for other presidents. They need something to take. He needs and Democrats need something to take to voters in November, even if it is, uh, you know, a tiny portion of what they originally envisioned and say, this is what we've done for you. And, and by the way, in that circumstance, it would be like, it might even be better for Democrats because they can say, look, we did this. We fought for this. We got this with no Republican support. Mm-hmm. You're going to enjoy these benefits because, you know, I did this. I led on this. Democratic Party did this. So, yeah, I think it's it, it's a it's a much smarter strategy. It took them a while to get there, but we'll see whether they can get it done or not. They need something. Well, and this goes back to my idea of just don't talk to liberal historians, but do talk to a historian. Have a historian, Tom, write a memo for you if you're an incoming president and have that memo be neutral, but explain how presidents have succeeded. And first thing I'd point out, I'd go to George W. Bush in 2001. What did he do? He wanted to get No Child Left Behind passed, and he knew he had to get through Ted Kennedy. So what does he do? He begins a charm offensive. He invites Senator Kennedy and the Kennedy family down to the White House to watch the movie 13 Days. And a relationship is forged out of that. Eventually, he gets his bill. So from the Biden White House, Tom, I am I'm calling up Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski, two Republicans who I think are there for the plucking, maybe on a deal. Uh, and then I would go with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, and I'd find out what they like to eat for dinner. I'd like to find out. I'd find out what the kind of ice cream they like for dessert. I'd see if the four of them could agree on a movie. It's Mitt Romney, so we know it's not going to be R-rated. But just if the four of them would come to the White House and maybe have a dinner and kind of talk politics, or maybe you'd have to break them up into separate pieces. But use your office and use the advantages of the presidency to try to get things done. But again, the curiosity this president, he doesn't seem to engage in this sort of stuff. But then again, it, it, ironically, that's kind of similar to Obama because one of the knocks against Obama, Tom, from his fellow Democrats was, gee, the guy never invites me down for dinner. He doesn't call me up. We just, you know, he doesn't he doesn't want to talk to us. But that but, but that's curious because this is the that's not, but, you know, Biden. That was Biden's M.O., though, was being a sort of backslapping wheeler. And dealer exactly. And, but, but as president, he is not. I mean, you can say you're president, not the senator. So you've got to take away certain aspects of the Senate, such as, you know, wonderfully, the long winded floor speeches. But use your senatorial skills, your people skills as president. But they have not done this. They have not. As far as I know, they have not brought members of Congress down. And Brownie's complained about this himself, as you mentioned earlier. He has not brought these people down to the White House and use the office. And it's, you know, it's dinners at the White House. It's rides on Air Force One. It's, you know, gee, is there something in your state we can do for you? Just there are all kinds of ways you can sort of butter a, a politician up. But the Biden White House just doesn't seem interested in playing that game. No, you're right. And and maybe they're going to start playing it. Maybe it's not too late to start playing it. Um, and again, it'll depend on what the what the issue is or the specific piece of legislation. But mm-hmm. um, you would think that they would have been <laughs> your historians could write, they could write about what succeeded. They could also write a big long memo about why presidents have failed. Right. And, and 
because presidents always believe it's it's almost innate. It's like a DNA thing that they come in with a mandate, right? That they have a mandate to do great things and big things when in fact, particularly in this instance, all the public wanted was to not have Donald Trump in office and just restore some some normalcy to, and yes, they wanted COVID taken care of, but, but right. they wanted normalcy and uh, that's not what they've gotten. And so um, I agree with you though. He should, he should, that's his strength. Um, and so far they haven't played to it at all. It might also be simple, Tom, that if you want to begin recovery, you first got to hit rock bottom and <laughs> rock bottom has probably not reached until election day of this year. Well, unfortunately for Democrats, you might be right about that, but you would think that, uh, perhaps they're, this is the thing. I mean, the people inside the white house are not stupid people. I mean, they, they clearly, they may be ideological and have blinders on, but they're not dumb. Um, I think the president doesn't have enough people around him, though, who are giving him uh, good, solid information about where the country is and and, you know, giving him better objective advice about uh, what he should what he should be doing. Um, It just feels like feels like they're very insular there. Um, And he's got too many people around him who who uh, are continue to push this this grand vision when um that's just not the reality of their situation right now yeah well come november if they lose at least one chamber of converse uh congress if not both then the strategy has to change because now you just can't push big ideas absolutely that on arrival so maybe maybe that's the course correction he needs tom we'll see okay uh any final thoughts anything we missed out on today (laughs) no i think we've covered it i think we've covered it Okay, so basically the president of the Biden White House has got a lot of cleaning up to do, and uh, and you're just dying to come out to Stanford and play golf. That's what we've learned today. That's what we've learned. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, we have a director, by the way, who likes to play golf, too, in case you're not aware. <laughs> I am aware. So, um, yes, I'm excited to get back out to uh, to California, if uh, especially now that it's nine degrees here in Chicago. So anytime soon, you know, please send the, the invitation my way. <laughs> Well, come soon and faster fe- and feast or famine in California. It rained in December. Now it's dry in January and February. So now is the time to show up. All right. If they'll let me in. Okay. Tom Bevan, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, get your uh, friends to have a listen. Spread the word. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Real Clear Politics is on the web. The website uh, location is www.realclearpolitics.com. Tom Bevan is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Tom Bevan RCP. Let me spell that out for you. T-O-M-B-E-V-A-N-R-C-P at Tom Bevan RCP. Uh, the Hoover Institution website, I mentioned earlier, www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of uh, Hoover Fellows to your inbox weekdays. Very simple to do that. Go to the Publications tab, click on where it says Hoover Publications, then the button where it says Hoover Daily Report, and you're in business. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.